Good morning and welcome to this special episode on the mother and baby homes. It's been a really tough week. The details of the report have been traumatising for many and this is of course in two senses. There's this disturbing facts in there, especially in the report of the Confidential Committee. But we've also heard so much about the upset and betrayal that survivors are feeling by the findings, the recommendations and the handling of the release of the report. So this morning, we're speaking to a panel of experts who bring in-depth knowing of the issue of history, of law, women's rights, children's rights, justice, redress to bear on the topic. I'm delighted to be joined by Marie Enright, Reader of Law at Birmingham Law School, uh, Fiona Fox, Solicitor with a uh, specialist in representing um, survivors in institutional abuse, Dr. Sarah Ann Buckley of NUI Galway, who specialises in gender history in Ireland, Dr. Sinead Ring, Assistant Professor in NUI Maynooth, whose research focuses on sexual violence in the law, and Conal Farda, the then journalist who put so much tireless work into bringing the need for investigation and redress into the public domain. We're actually not going to talk too much about the politics of how this has been handled this week because there's a lot of other comment out there on that. And if you haven't yet, please listen back to Catherine Connolly's interview with Tony and Martin yesterday, which was very powerful. Um, And of course, there's so many contributions that have been made by women and survivors um, across different platforms during the week. And our friend Noelle Brown on um, The Late Late Show last night was particularly powerful. Instead, our focus is going to be on the detail of the report and we'll try and pay attention to some of the elements that have not been considered elsewhere. As ever, please continue to support the work we're doing by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash tortoise We've actively waited a few days to do this um, so that we can have a bit of a more considered reflection, though it will take months to fully digest this report. And as ever, we've space for questions from our amazing audience. Um, Maybe if it's discussion and chat, keep that in the chat. But if you have very particular questions that you want answered, maybe pop those in the Q&A section. And Tony is going to be keeping an eye on that for me today. So um, let's start with a little bit of background and how this got started and and what led to the commission being established. Um, Sarah, do you want to maybe start us off on that? Sure. Thanks, Vicky. Um, And uh, thanks for organising this. Um, I suppose a lot of people uh, thankfully know the name Catherine Corliss now. And it was really Catherine's work on the Tume Institution um, which was initially ignored, actually, <laughs> in national media. And it was when it got more attention in international media that um, really the, the kind of uh, momentum behind the commission built up. But it's definitely worth saying, and I think it's something I'll say throughout, um, that we've, as historians, journalists, a lot of the people on this panel, known and talked about these institutions for many years, survivors, have talked about these institutions for decades. So a big question here is also, why do we keep having these commissions that only deal with very minute aspects of this broad history? Um, And I think that's really important because uh, I don't see any apathy in the public when it comes to this history, but I do see a sense of why is it so piecemeal that we're learning about this? So for me, that broader history is really important. So after Catherine's work, particularly this question around the burials, which is still such an issue today, um, there were calls for a commission of inquiry. It was set up in, in 2015. And I suppose for academics, once these commissions are set up and we see the terms of reference, 
and for survivors also, we either get very disappointed, which is often the case, or we start um, predicting what will come in what we wouldn't have thought would be six years, but <laughs> has been. Um, so the terms of reference are really important because it sets out very quickly what a commission will look at. And in this case, what a commission will not look at. So that's something I guess uh, I'll say. Um, and I guess on that terms of reference, um, lots of people know now, but 14 so-called mother and baby homes for a sample of county homes, which when I'm teaching this history, um, you know, the old workhouses or the one institution we used to only know existed in Ireland up until 15 years ago, the so-called poorhouse. So these are the institutions that were chosen. And I think, you know, uh, that has really led to a lot of what we've got in this report. And how narrow is that to have taken 14? Well, and I can talk a bit more about this later. Um, chapter two, I would encourage anyone to delve into chapter two in the report because it goes through um, the maternity homes, the Magdalene laundries, the uh, other private and public institutions. It also is a full list of all the county homes. And what we can see from the report and what we would know from previous research is that the county homes, the treatment of unmarried mothers and others and the conditions in the home were horrific. They were of the worst. So the fact that we only have, you know, such a small percentage of those is, is really problematic, I think. Um, and also, and it'll come up again later, but um, there is obviously this commentary and this history of boarding out or fostering and also children placed at nurse. But again, we know that for many survivors, that was one of the uh, places of, of most harm and, and upset. So I think that there's still a lot to be covered there. Um, and so I really, but I would encourage people there's a lot of reading here. Like I definitely haven't gotten through the whole report, but if you are going to dip in, have a dip into that chapter too, especially for survivors who are maybe feeling like, where's my institution? I know that yeah. I was in a private maternity home. Why am I not hearing that? So I think it's important um, because the other thing we know from research is so many of these institutions are connected. You know, there's people being passed between them. So those connections are really important. Um, so I guess for me as a historian, let's keep it as broad as we can on the discussion. Yeah, we had we had Gabrielle on the police podcast and she was born into one of these and then in institution and schools and then in the Magdalene laundries. So it's, you know, it's the equivalent of care now in certain respects. Can I ask, sorry, from a point of ignorance, and I'm guessing if I'm ignorant, others hopefully are too. When you say boarding out, what does that actually mean? So it's it's what we would understand as fostering now, okay. but the legislation is from the 19th century. So 1862 is when the boarding out legislation is put in place. And it is, um, there's changes over the 100 years between 1862 and 1953, the ages at which people can be boarded out. There is criteria there and there should be inspections. And one of the things with the report that I found most, I suppose, frustrating is this discussion around responsibility between local authorities and the department. So there's the commission itself points out that when it came to boarding out, the female 
they were they were all female uh, inspectors in the department are showing and writing about which we know because we've reported and recorded this the horrific conditions and the male uh, assistance officers are not even really checking the sleeping arrangements they're not checking the children's clothing they're not checking if they're going to school and they actually point out that the tension means that you know the the losers here are the children themselves so that's something that runs through the whole report this you know question of oh who's actually responsible which i just find uh probably uh, one of the biggest issues um so board and i really that was a long answer to boarding out <laughs> is what we now know as foster care <laughs> no that's great um connell can i ask you like it's this really weird thing right because like none of this was in, in certain respects unknown or new it wasn't we didn't discover this suddenly 10 years ago that this was all happening um you know everyone ha- knows to an extent that grew up <laughs> with the threat of Bespera or whatever it was um when you were doing this work 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, why was it such a battle, do you think, to get this going? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 honestly, I don't know. Um, it, it's strange. I, I suppose like, I came to it from a perspective of knowing nothing about it. So, I mean, I initially started writing stories about... Uh, inter-country adoption and people who were looking to adopt from abroad and like I literally fell into the story when I was I was reading back over old Oireachtas committees um <clears throat> not not for fun I, I was I was working <laughs> and um <clears throat> I came across Susan Lowen speaking I think it was back in 2005 about um adoption legislation that was being planned at the time um and she had referenced illegal adoptions and being a reporter, I went, okay, well, what's, what's that all about? You know, you see the word illegal, it must be something there. And I I called Susan and she was like, you're the first journalist who've called me on this in years. So I met her and then I went up to Dublin and I bumped into someone with her who told me about Tressa Reeves. And then Tressa's son was, um, his birth was, she was, she was born, she was, she got pregnant in England when she was a teenager. She was, her parents were Irish. They sent her to Dublin to a, private nursing home she gave birth there and St. Patrick's Guild arranged for the child's birth to be falsified the the birth registration and he was subsequently uh illegally adopted um and I I I could not believe that this had happened like it blew my mind at the time um I went to interview Tressa in England and like she showed me all her records and all the rest and I wrote the story um and it kind of blew up amongst a kind of a certain cohort of people. So I started getting loads of phone calls from people who'd been in similar situations, um, telling me all sorts of things about children going abroad and who they were bumping into in airports. And I was like, this is insane. Like, how how have I not, how did I not know anything about this? Um, so I suppose it, it, it made certain traction amongst a cohort of people, but even within the media, it rarely got picked up. Um, and I started to write lots of things about illegal birth registrations initially, and then kind of broadened onto more kind of insidious forms of illegal adoption. Um, so adoption was always my area. And that then brought in, you know, whether it be a mother and baby home, an adoption society, whether there's details about maternity, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. So the more I started to write about it, the more I started to learn, well, in fact, this is all really one, one story. It's, it's about women and children and it's, it's not about individual institutions. And like that speaks to the point 
Sarah Ann's making, like we seem to be continually doing these reports and these apologies for essentially the same thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I started into it. And it really didn't gain much traction at all. Um, I'm trying to remember how, like I was on the radio the odd time about different stories, but they tended to be, if I had written a, a personal story, which was particularly tragic, mm -hmm. right? And the more I started to write about it, the less I wanted to do that, because the more I wanted to say, well, in some ways, the media can tend to want these horrible stories. And, and uh, that's not to take away from, obviously, the experiences of people. But when you start to delve into the systemic nature of it all and how it operated and the power structures are played, that to me was where I suppose the, the, real, um, the real story was in terms of really getting to the bottom of this and, and hopefully holding people account, accountable. Um, but there was less interest in that um, in terms of the media profile um, and, and often, you know, the public reaction tends to flow from if something is a big story. Um, so then it, it really just, I, I just kept writing about it and I just kept doing stories. And then obviously Tume happened and that was a complete game changer, yeah. you know. Um, and I still, I still think Tume wouldn't have been a game changer only for the international media picked it up. Yeah. Um, I really like, because there has been a kind of an... Um, a narrative out there that that the, the and the government have perpetuated it that you know we didn't know and that they didn't know anything about this um in terms of either infant mortality or just general issues around adoption um until sure it was never discussed to cabinet <laughs> but but even even more recent i mean when the when the McAleese committee was looking into um doing its thing on the laundries they they looked specifically at Bespera and Chew. Um, on the advice of, uh, I think, uh, Jim Smith, because he sent them some stuff um, in Boston College. And they looked specifically at exit pathways to mother and baby homes. And at that point, um, a HSE social worker found an, a tomb, a, the archive relating to Tume and was so concerned about what was in there. I mean, I had a story on this. Um, I got leaked some information on this. Um, and there's a memo there, basically, where the HSE management is saying, we need this to go to the minister. This, this needs an inquiry of its own. Um, and that was just kicked down the road, you know, until uh, Catherine's work, uh, you know, generated enough of a media storm for the government to have to do something. So anytime you hear this kind of, we didn't really know, well, not only did you know at the time, like in the 40s, 50s, um, you also knew, knew in 2012 and did nothing yeah. about it. Um, and I think that's I'm, an important point. I'm always really... Um interested in this point about how tribunals come about like in my own work the Mars Tribunal took about 10 years to argue to get established whereas Kerry Babies was established pretty much overnight um, and these things you know there there's something very interesting and in how this doesn't happen because it should it happens because the right people get to push the right buttons and as you say we, like we've been a, a little bit addicted in this country I think for the last while in these personal stories and particularly women having to sell their souls to convince you that we need truth and justice which should not be the case at all it should just simply it should be on a human rights basis which is you know something we're going to come back to and all of that then tends to shape the terms reference and as Sarana said it got so narrowed here so few institutions like you hear the numbers of 9,000 and that is not representative at all of the reality of it and then there's other problems with the terms of reference um and I know Marie told me she didn't want to talk about this but I actually think when she hears my questions she's going to want to talk about this so like there's two things that really strike me that the terms of reference permitted the commission to establish its own methodology 
And within that, two things are like just from what I'm hearing, really strikingly coming out. Firstly, is what's called a burden of proof um, and how that got applied in the situation. situation. Um, and secondly, the, um, the who they employed. Um, Marie, do you want to have a rant about who the commission employed? I mean, I wouldn't like to have a rant. I think they did a great job. I don't know what anybody's problem is. Um, yeah, uh, maybe on burdens of proof and all of that, Sinead might be might be better on the technicalities than I am. The only thing I'd say is, well, with a proviso, I have searched the report very thoroughly for discussion of burden of proof. And burden of proof is just a, a legal way of saying how you decide um, what standards you're going to apply in drawing certain conclusions. Now, this isn't a, a court. It's not a, a it, it doesn't have any powers to find guilt or innocence in a criminal sense. Um, it's not um, making, you know, concrete conclusions on state liability or the liability of other agencies under civil law. Um, but nevertheless, it is making certain what will be taken as statements of fact. And so past inquiries have been cautious in various ways about which kinds of conclusions they're ready to come to. But past inquiries have also given us some kind of hint as to how they decide what statements they're going to make. Um I didn't find a section or a statement in the report that said this is how we decided whether we would say this happened, this didn't happen, or we can't tell whether or not it happened. Um, Now, that may also be just as a really basic thing. I know people have been saying, for example, survivors didn't get paper copies of the report. Um, As somebody who's very online, I've found that whatever way the PDF is formatted, it's very difficult to search. Um, And so it may well be that there is something in there. The report is also really badly organised, so it may be that there's a discussion of standard of proof in there somewhere that's not where it should be, and that's why I've not found it. But I'm 98% certain there isn't a discussion. Um, and then even if we come away from like a legalistic idea of standard of proof, there's just tremendous vagueness in places around how it's drawing its conclusions. Even to the point of numbers, they'll say some survivors say, a number of survivors say, a few survivors say. Well, you heard 500 plus people at this committee. How many of them said X, Y, and Z? And another reason why that's surprising, and we only learned that from um, Noelle Brown's appearance on Claire Byrne on the radio, or certainly I only learned it from this. You know, we've been talking about transcripts of people's evidence to the confidential committee. And when we were talking about transcripts, I, in my innocence, thought we were talking about verbatim transcripts. But Noelle, who has had her transcript back, says it's more like a questionnaire form. So you spoke to a kind of a mediator or or a person in the confidential committee, and then that form was filled in, and that form is what you've gotten back. Now, if I were advising a postgraduate student who wanted to go out and do some fieldwork, one of the things you'd say to them is they'd have an interview schedule of the questions they propose to ask, and you would interrogate those questions. And one thing you would ask your the person you were advising or ask yourself as a researcher is, have I already decided what I'm going to find? Like if I have a solid list of questions and I'm not just letting people speak, mm-hmm. have I already decided? So that's 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 important. It's very difficult to tell. You know, when they make a statement, like, for example, I know we'll talk about this later, there's very little evidence of forced adoption. 
what does very little evidence mean? Not a mind, what does forced adoption mean? And that's very confusing for people when, you know, if you control F, consent, or you you control F, you know, signed, you come across vignettes that describe things that sound to most people a lot like force. The other thing, maybe just about what the confidential committee is, and Sinead might be better on this again than I am. Um, the, the, The commission had power to hear evidence in public or in private, but it also held a confidential committee. And most people spoke to the confidential committee and far fewer people spoke to the commission, though some people spoke to both. It was 500 and something to the confidential committee. I think it was 18 or 19, a much smaller number. And that was by choice. Um, Well, we know from the Clan Project that some people requested public hearings. And I don't think, or if any public hearings were granted, very few. So people who spoke to the commission spoke in private. The confidential committee, the idea was that it would be more informal and that it would be particularly suitable for people who didn't want, let's say, people, other people associated with the institution where they had been to know what they were saying or that they were saying anything at all. But the the committee is very confusing because it's hived off in a separate section of the report on its own. What people said to the confidential committee is described throughout as testimony or evidence, and they are called witnesses, Right. But it's not clear that what was said at the confidential committee actually informed the report. And that's for a number of reasons. Um, One thing I did, and I'm not saying this is a scientific method, right, but I ran the report through a plagiarism checker. And certainly there are no direct quotes from the confidential committee reappearing elsewhere in the body of the main report. And so I mean, if you were if you were supervising a student who'd done empirical work and they didn't reference the the well, the interviews in the in their dissertation like they'd be failing well it it's not that's not just a research question that's an i mean it, well it is a research well it's it's a research question okay, in terms it, of how you're reaching yeah. your findings within the report yes. it's also an ethical question in terms of respect and and it's a it's a question around the trust like how can you expect survivors to trust this report particularly people who might have preferred to go down a legal avenue. Now, not preferred as in desired, but preferred as in felt they might have a better chance of getting a statement of what happened to them. The confidential committee report I found personally hard to read, and I don't mean distressing. And I think that's important. Of course, the content is distressing. I didn't find it distressing to read. People's names are anonymized, and that's fine. The institutions are anonymized. The experiences are anonymized. It is thematically, loosely thematically organized, so you don't get a full narrative. And that's one of the reasons why the Clan Project um, had their own evidence gathering uh, process and then subsequently submitted statements, uh, affidavits actually, right, to the commission. And those affidavits appear as full narratives in the report. So strategically, that was a very good idea if you wanted to make sure that at least your statement was near the analysis of what happened in a particular institution. But the last thing maybe to say about evidence, not the last thing, but another thing to say about evidence is, okay, um, so I'm a legal scholar, right? And we might talk about a socio-legal methodology, which is where you're interested in how the law actually acts on people and actually applies. But even if you do a really dry law degree, you might answer problem questions. And the reason we get students to answer problem questions is we want them to discuss how this principle of law might actually have affected this person. So there's a chapter on adoption, which describes the law. 
And then all of the narratives about people to whom that law was applied are scattered all over the report. And at no point that I can find do you have a section. It may be there. Again, the report's badly organized. I apologize if it turns out there is an example there somewhere. I'll walk it back. But I could not find a, a place in the report where someone's story was told And then the report says, "Okay, this adoption happened in 1956. The Adoption Act 1952 should have applied. This person should not. They they may have decided to place their baby for adoption when they were four weeks old, but the final order could not be made until they were six months old. This is what the nuns told them. This is what the agency told them. Here is where the question of consent may arise. Here is a problem. Other people are left to do that analysis for themselves. Yeah. Like this and is... you, you could even have looked at, sorry, I'm not saying that the court should, sorry, the court, the commission <laughs> should have decided individual cases, but it could have looked at common themes, put together, let's say, an, a, a fairly abstract um, case study based on people's real stories and given some indication in practical terms of what it considered to be appropriate and what it considered to be inappropriate applications of the law. But there's such a disconnect, and I'll shut up then on this point, there's such a disconnect that you have the report saying in one section, um, when it, yeah, the chapter on adoption, chapter 32, we have very little evidence of the, you know, how the adoption system was applied in practice, how consent was taken in practice. And then elsewhere in the report, you have story after story where people say, on the day that my baby was adopted, I remember who was with me. I remember what car I drove. I remember where I went. I remember what was said to me. Now, what are you supposed to think when you read that? There was no practical evidence. And so the the violence of it, the violence of um, that failure to take basic to employ basic methodological safeguards I think can't be understated and like that methodology stuff you know it's both in terms of trust for survivors like but this isn't us being pedantic academics like this is rig what makes work rigorous and reliable and trustworthy and it gives us confidence in you know across academia if we have things peer-reviewed that's that's the marker that gives us confidence that there has been you know proper standards applied in this work and that the conclusion reached are evidence-based and informed and properly interrogated so the methodology and the failure to outline it in practice is is really damning of the report It, it undermines a lot of it. Um, Sinead, I Maureen mentioned you a few times. Would you like to comment on any of these points or any evidence yeah, well, of I it? Maureen said it out really beautifully, but I mean, um, the fundamental question is what what is the commission doing? Um, is it a fact finder? Is it a storyteller of, and if so, of what stories and who's writing the story? Um, and I think the theme coming through the whole time from, from what I've you know, engage with in terms of survivor commentary and academic commentary is that the there is a narrative being imposed that doesn't fit essentially with um, what survivors have said and what, you know, I think Kath, um, Catherine Connolly yesterday in the podcast um, with Tony talked about them as whistleblowers, not, sur- not even survivors, but whistleblowers. And I think that point is so important that we owe people a huge amount of um, a huge debt in terms of um, our knowledge of ourselves as a country um, now and in the past and and also into the future. Um, and 
but just that point on on the legalistic point on on the standard of proof you know when when the um the commission to inquire into child abuse was set up um originally under um uh, justice lafoy mary lafoy um judge lafoy made it very clear that the the you know she wrote out a very clear document setting out the standard of proof and it would have been amazing if that had been done for this it would have been appropriate if this had if this, that had been done for this report um and she made it very clear that the standard of proof was um the civil standard of proof um so on the balance of probabilities is something more likely than not and i think that's really important because people get might might perhaps be confused by all the different discussions of um what's going on and and often we refer to what's happened as crimes and i think there are certainly um and we can talk about that later there are certain certainly very good reasons to think that crimes have been committed but that's not the job of as Mairead said of this um commission the commission was to be a fact finder and to make uh, certain recommendations uh, statements about the past um and recommendations about the pa- about the future really um and so more likely than not on the balance of probabilities is a much lower um standard than the criminal one which is beyond a reasonable doubt and i think that's so important to remember and when they say there's no evidence of something they then contradict that by by um referring to the testimony and the affidavits which are equivalent to a testimony sworn affidavits um you know i think clown submitted or hogan lovells um submitted 61 sworn affidavits um from survivors to the commission and then they also talk about direct evidence given to the commission as well um again it's not clear whether they're talking there about the commission or the confidential committee that could have been clarified but they are on the one hand saying there's evidence of something and on the other hand saying there's no evidence of something so it's very very difficult to take what they're saying as as a fact finding exercise it's also really hard to interrogate it. So like I'm going to I am going to keep coming back to this. I, I have a huge problem with tribunals full stop. I don't think they ever give victims satisfaction at all. And I think they're a dreadful mechanism. But if you take Kerry Babies, like it set out in Kerry Babies that it was applying uh, uh, the civil standard, balance of probabilities. Yeah. But actually, in terms of establishing whether or not the guards had done wrong, they didn't apply that. They very definitely applied, you know, um, the criminal standard beyond all reasonable doubt. But because they set that out, we can take that as a marker and say, you said you were going to do one thing, but that's absolutely not what you did. Um, yeah. And that is one of the grounds why the Kerry Babies has been found to be incorrect and unfounded. But he, because that hasn't been done here, how do you interrogate um, how decisions were made and whether they even did what they said they were going to do? Because <laughs> they didn't say what they were going to do. Yeah, so there's no way to evaluate what they've said. It's just a list of statements. Um, and... You know, yeah, it's just very, it's impossible to evaluate what's been done. And, um, you know, I think we need to come back to all the time this idea of um, what we're asking survivors to do when we ask them to engage with these kinds of um, bodies, you know, and there are other ways of doing it. Okay, yes, um, the, 
the Rhine Commission, for example, was a world leader in many ways in, in the way in which it set up its structures um, of investigative committee and therapeutic or confidential committee. Um, I have problems with how it conducted its work, but it certainly was um, innovative in that at least attempt to have a therapeutic function as well as a fact-finding function. And those two um, functions were very clearly separated and explained. And I think that's really important. And if you think about another, other other commissions in other countries, you can think about the Royal Commission into, into Institutional Child Sexual Abuse um, in Australia, which reported in 2017, it ran for you know four years. They were really um, leaders in trauma-informed principles in engaging with survivors and so they were really careful about how they engage with survivors they did things like um you know like just basic things like allowing survivors access to a written copy of their transcript that's part of a trauma-informed approach to process and those they developed a set of principles which are on their website and they said you know police should engage with these principles and use these principles when engaging with survivors of violence or any any crimes and, um, you know, social work, child protection, they should all engage. So there are um, ways of dealing with um, questions of harm and questions of violence that um, have been developed in other countries that we could have used and we could have looked to. And we chose not to. sarah you wanted to come in there? Yeah, just in regards to see. I think when it comes to the methodology, obviously one of the ways this report has been sold is as a social history of 20th century Ireland. So, and that is very much where the, the blame um, aspect has been brought into. So with that in mind, it is important, as I'm sure most everyone on this call knows, that we have different interpretations of documents and of our history. And to me, that has been one of the difficult things as a historian, picking out and all we can do, obviously, in our bite-sized culture on Twitter is we pick out these little fragments for now. But they are fragments that demonstrate that there is a certain tone and narrative going through this report that I wouldn't say is reflected in the larger body of 19th and 20th century Irish social history. And in particular, I'll just give two small examples which are really large. That comment on the 19th century about unmarried mothers being viewed perhaps as prostitutes, that is in a very limited number of studies. And there are many studies in 19th and thankfully over the last 30 years because of really women's history, feminist history. Similarly, the commentary on the Eighth Amendment really, which has upset a lot of people. That is a very, very narrow and unusual take on the 1980s in Ireland. And my issue is, if it is to be a social history, if that's what this is to be primarily, and to be honest, I'm going to say something that probably isn't that popular, but it's a very useful document for historians as a document, because I surely haven't gotten access to loads of those records. There are call numbers there, which we wanted we can now see, OK, issues with the preservation of archives. It highlights how the HSE do not preserve and legislatively do not protect records. It highlights the 20, well, they say 30 year rule for local archives, but there's no, it's 20 years. There's no resources. You can't get into the archives for the majority of them. Really important things are highlighted for the future of our social history. The interpretation and narrative, it wouldn't be mine. 
Maybe it is lots of other people's, but it's not mine. And I think that has to be part of the discussion that I often say to the students, I have a job because we have different interpretations. Otherwise, we'd have one history book on everything. Thankfully, we don't. We have different interpretations. And that's really important for us as a country and the general public, because I think this should, in fairness to the minister, be taught throughout our our secondary primary schools. Let's get in there. We used to say it was a minority. It's obviously not now. So let's get it in there. But let's consider how we uh, interpret it. And I think there's a really important point that, that underlines all of this, which is around, you know, the staffing of the commission, the lack of any lawyers. Um, and we can interrogate the, the research skills of those involved. Connell, you wanted to jump in there as well. And you're all being very polite. Please yeah. feel free to butt in. Uh, just a quick thing, um, just to speak to what Sarah Ann said there, like, uh, like it's with all these reports, I have a real issue when um, any minister or Taoiseach stands up then and refers to any state report as the definitive response to something. Um, you know, like Sarah Ann said, the reason she has a job is because we have different interpretations. But worse than that is that we, we only get one interpretation because our, our, the rest of us aren't going to be able to access pretty much any of the material that they that they looked at um, and pointing or going back to what Mairead had to say as well. Um, I found the structure of the whole thing really convoluted and really difficult to follow. Um, I mean, I jumped straight into the adoption chapter as well. And like straight away, what jumped out at me was that the, the commission, they did a section on illegal registrations, um, birth registrations. Um, and it struck me that they used the law. I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but they used the law for, kind of to draw different conclusions. So they'll say like illegal registrations. Oh, well, they may have been illegal, but, um, you know, they may have done them for the right reason again, but then the, the corollary is they may have done them for the wrong reasons also. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, but anyway, you know, it's, it's, it's minimized, you know, there wasn't really, nobody really cared. There wasn't a big hoo-ha about it at the time, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that struck me. And then on the other side of that, they talk about, um, U.S. adoptions, and they reference a story that was in the Sunday Independent about St. Therese Adoption Society. Um, and I, I've done a little bit of work on the same institution. Um, and it points out that I just pulled it up here because I wanted to make sure I knew it. It should be said that it was open to any pregnant woman to make arrangements to go to the USA, give birth there and have the baby adopted under American law. It did, however, involve a lot of planning and probably could not be easily arranged without assistance from other people who knew how the American system worked. And then it just concludes with it is not clear that there was any illegality involved in helping women to go to the USA to, in order to birth there and have their baby adopted there. So, I mean, it's over-legalistic in one sense, in the sense it's definitive that something was illegal, but it's not too bad. And then in the second uh, issue, you have essentially you're talking about a, a system where people are being trafficked to the US and you kind of go, well, it's, you know, it's not really clear if it was legal or not legal. Um, and then the last point I'll make, and I wrote a piece about this in the examiner today because I, I, like I was asked to write a piece and I, I didn't really know where to start. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, how do you sum it all up? Um, but I took one, because I knew uh, the case intimately, um, I, I, I took one story that I had written about um, an experience of one woman called Jackie. And again, I, I know I say I don't try to, I try not to write one stories or stories of individual horror shows or whatever. But I mean, her story, I think, pointed to um, the systemic nature of all of this. Um in the adoption section, it says that the commission had not, has not seen any evidence of illegal registration of births which occurred in the mother and baby homes and county homes under investigation. Of course, it is not possible, 
not possible to say that this did not occur, but neither the institutional nor the Department of Health records reveal any such evidence. So I was infuriated when I read that because Jackie's story in the examiner, and I mean, it took a lot of time to get, A, to get her to have, she really did not want to speak about it. Um, and we had to go through all her records and then we had to FOI more records. Um, I mean, she went to Bespar in 1974. She was 16. She was instructed to sign a name, which was not her own on a consent form. She didn't know how to spell the name. So she looked up to the nuns and her mother and said, well, how do you spell that? And then sign the name. All of the documentation in the wake of that is falsified. Her son's birth cert is made out in a false name. Her son's baptismal certificate is made out in a false name. The adoption order is contracted in false names. Um, when she went getting her records in 2017, she does emails between Tusla staff saying, don't refer to this case as illegal. We have to keep our, you know, our powder dry in case these people start taking legal actions. All of what happened to Jackie is documented, yeah. right? And then in, I, I, I went to the confidential committee report. She is in there. It's one paragraph. Um, and the opening paragraph says, a witness had to ask for assistance when she was unable to spell the Christian name when she was told to write it on the document she was given to sign. Now, the, I won't read the whole, the rest of the paragraph, but that first sentence yeah. in no way implies that the reason she was asking to spell the Christian name was because it wasn't her Christian name. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that just drove me insane. And then yeah. I spoke to Jackie yesterday. She had two boxes of records with her and she wasn't asked for any of them. They never looked Reduced at one document or never copied any of them. So, yeah. I mean, that, things like that, like as Marie said, you know, whatever about presenting history, if you then talk about illegal registrations, the obvious thing to do then is jump into a, a, you know, a woman then spoke to us and said X, Y, and Z, her record said X, Y, and Z, and it points to a practice. But that doesn't happen. So... I do want to anyway, get into I'll leave it at that. I do want to get into some of the particular dimensions, but um I want to ask Fiona, as a practitioner, did you um there's been a lot of conversation here. Is there any particular dimension that you wish to comment on? Uh no, um I think that the impressions that I've I've looked at the report so far, I can only say what everyone else has said, that the conclusions were reached without evidence or um um, it's, it's, and I think I just like to say that it's a really, really sad day that we, we, these commissions get worse, not not better. Um, some of my clients were in mother and baby homes, and they're also in industrial schools, and they, the, the generate into the generational aspects. So now I just, I mean, I'm actually learning a lot from from everyone else's expertise within this. Um, and it's, yeah, I think it's just a sad, a sad week, really. Um, I think the report is just a very poor quality, I think, overall, from what I've seen so far. Yeah. If we pick up on some of the particular points, so I think people, I think certain things have been captured in the media this week that, you know, there's findings that the only abuse was emotional, which is clearly an unfounded finding. Um, and I think this conversation so far has been really helpful in people understanding how and why um, such erroneous conclusions could be drawn. And I'm pulling no punches in my words. Um, and, you know, the question of forced adoptions, um, that terminology is deeply problematic. Uh, the fact of girls, 12 year old girls being called women, um, these places being called a refuge. There's so much that's problematic with um 
the language, but maybe to pick up on some of the points that have been a little less discussed. Um, there's a whole chapter on disability within the report. Um, would anyone like to comment on on what is said there? Yeah, Mairead. Um There's a chapter on discrimination. Maybe I'm sorry. Like yeah, bring them all together. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, there, at least I, from the, off the top of my head, there are three issues that are discussed there. One is race, ch- mixed race children. Another is um, disabled children. And the third is cases where um, the mother's capacity to consent to the adoption might have been in question, whether because of mental illness or intellectual disability. Um, There's no capacity question, just as an aside, there's no capacity question around teenagers because adoption law doesn't distinguish between um, a woman who is a child herself or who was not able, you know, who was too young to consent to the sex that got her pregnant um, and an an adult woman. Um, in relation to disability, um, Eleanor Flynn from the Centre for Disability Law and Politics had an excellent thread on Twitter that people might want to look up. Um, and there's a couple of things. Um, one is, and the Commission says it itself, it didn't hear from anybody who um, had been, I think, I don't know if it's anybody who had identified as um, belonging to that cohort of children who would have been considered disabled or who had been moved to what the uh, report euphemistically calls specialist institutions for disabled children or children with disabilities at the time. Um, The report, when it talks about children with particular disabilities, um, often uses the medical terminology that would have been used at the time and makes no attempt to account for that or correct it. So some of the ways in which children are discussed um, are very distressing. And it also kind of takes for granted that the institutionalization of disabled children, many of whom are still alive today as disabled adults, living within a system where we know um, disregard for people's autonomy is uh, still very much an everyday experience. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't interrogate that at all. It doesn't think about, for example, the fact that children were put into care as the beginning of a lifelong struggle with institutionalization and an inevitable lifelong struggle with institutionalization. It doesn't really talk about, you know, the disability one is difficult to square with the story it wants to tell about parenthood outside marriage and the structure of the patriarchal family, because often these are the children of parents who were married. And so if you were to take a disability studies approach to that particular section of the report, you would have to ask much more radical questions about care and state support and the limits of what um, the patriarchal marital family was expected to do at the time. Um, The section on race, um, I mean, there are people who are better qualified to speak about it than I am. There's an excellent article by Kaylin Hogan in the New York Times talking to people about it out yesterday. What struck me about it was the profound misunderstanding of what racial discrimination is, and that is putting it mildly, because the report asks whether children, mixed race children, were less likely to be adopters than children who were not mixed race. And it says that it has found no evidence of that. Now, we've already already had the what is no evidence uh, question. Rosemary Dasser says that she, as a member of the Collaborative Forum for Survivors, which was supposed to be an integral part of the process, Um, asked and asked and asked Professor Daly to bring in an expert on history of race. And that was not done. And that is absolutely evident from the content of this part of the report. The language that is repeated in describing children who were mixed race, in describing their parents, in describing um, Minkera traveller children, is 
incredibly shocking because it simply repeats the language of the time. The comparisons that are made between mixed race children and children with other kinds of physical features are astonishing. So to give some examples, in the chapter where they discuss a mixed race child's chance of being adopted, they also talk about children with red hair and they talk about children whose parents were Spanish or Greek or Cypriot or Turkish. And so they will follow discussions of of how um, children whose parents were Nigerian, Ghanaian and so on. They'll follow a brief discussion of that with maybe a, a comment from a parent who wanted to say how handsome their child who had probably had a Greek father was. The discussion of redheaded or foxy children, um, which they talk about as if it were a comparator for race, when anyone who knows anything about adoption studies would imagine that within a secret system where you were uh, strongly warned to present your adopted child as your birth child, that bringing home a redheaded child, if nobody else in the family had red hair, was a challenge to that system. But it's presented in the text of the report as if it were a consumerist choice, as if, you know, the choices that parents made was a matter more of, you know, human selfishness or human preference, rather than the fact that this adoption was taking place within a, a, a social system where, any form of difference in this in the context of family formation was strongly discouraged. And then there are vignettes in there, it's really not clear where they have come from, that are, you know, repeating the attitudes of the time towards mixed race couples, where women are presented as incredibly foolish or vulnerable, which of course is a characteristic of how unmarried mothers were presented in at various times throughout this history, and where they're the fathers of their children are presented as predatory. I'm not going to repeat the vignettes, actually. Mm. People can go and find them for themselves. But they are just presented there as, just as if they were relevant and as if they were not. You know, things are presented, how should I put it? Things are presented to excuse racism, which are very obviously examples of institutional racism. And so the report, and maybe this is something it has in common with other things, The report, when it talks about discrimination, is very much focused on the moment of the adoption decision and some limited information around the moment of the adoption decision. But, of course, decision-making takes place in a context, right? And so if you are a a mixed-race child, the placement decision that was made about you, you, when you grow up or when you're a child, you're going to understand that decision in the context of, for example, being institutionalized in a place where you were racially abused multiple times a day, every single day. Yeah. And the the report just does not do that. It doesn't set the decision in the context of the person's life course and understanding. And that is not for want of being told. But it also doesn't set it in the standard. Of, like, it's one thing to say, oh, well, these were the social attitudes. But the state, as the provider of care, is was required to operate to a much higher standard, even at that time. I mean, Sarah Ann mentioned the requirement for inspections at boarding. Ireland had signed the European Convention on Human Rights in the 50s. Like, you know, you can look to the Garda Code and you'll see stuff about how women um, in the 1960s, how it talks about women who may have given birth um, and their baby may have died, how how, um, tentatively and carefully and sensitively they needed to be handled. Like the state has an obligation to work to a higher level even then. So 
judging the actions in these homes by social attitudes at the time is not good enough. And that's not acceptable. And that's not the framework that we were operating in. Um, Sarah, I'm not even wanna... certain that that's occurring. <laughs> that's the yeah. thing. I, I'm not even, because like one of the things I was surprised was absent um, in some discussion was, you know, the fact that Ireland was incredibly censored in the 40s and 50s. How can you judge like public outcry or or media without going into the fact that there were so many things you couldn't discuss? Um, there was also a few recent studies that I didn't see in the bibliography, one on the history of intellectual disability, a PhD thesis by David Kilgannon. Like I've done work on the history of incest. There's lots of, I suppose, even from that historical point of view, I think you know, there there are ways that we could have been more involved um, in the scholarship. And we we must, obviously, the discipline of history, we will judge its context of the time, but that means we have to take in all the factors, ones that I've mentioned now. I particularly found the fact, that the point about infant mortality, that there weren't concerns raised or public, that that's just not played out in the evidence I've seen. It just isn't. Like, if anything, from the First World War, there's a huge discussion and concern around parent growing illegitimacy rates, a lot of it connected with the First World War and then infant mortality. So it's just not um, played out for me in, in the, the evidence I've seen. But that's why I think we need different interpretations of this material. Um. I am very conscious of time and that you're all giving time on a Saturday. Um, I do want to move to um, what happens next. Um, and there are other points you could pick up. And I don't know, maybe there's there's, there's a series of podcasts to be done on this report in and of itself um, to help people understand the, the nuance of it. Um, Sinead, could I maybe bring you in to talk about the possibility of criminal investigations, which is one um, yeah, I mean, it's a really big question. Um, one of the fundamentally one of the main um, objectives of any um, process that looks back in time at human rights abuses is accountability. So um, a big part of accountability is can be um, criminal justice responses. So criminal prosecutions. Um, if you think about just to place it in context, if you think about the Ryan Commission only 11 um, cases of child sexual abuse were um, referred to the DPP after that, and only four then resulted in a in a, um, an actual process, an actual uh, prosecution. Um, there were others then, and, and obviously the Murphy Commission as well, quite a few um, people there were prosecuted. But, um, you know, <laughs> the... Um, there are a number of possible crimes, shall we say, that um, we can we can think about when we're thinking about the commit the the actions that are described um, by survivors. So we could think about manslaughter. So it's possible that um, somebody might be killed through neglect. So that would be a form of manslaughter, as you know. Um, you could also have, um, you know, there are a number of sexual offences that we might want to think about, including rape and unlawful carnal knowledge of a girl under 15 um, and uh, incest, indecent assault. And these kinds of crimes are ones that I work on all the time. So they're prosecuted all the time. Um, you Kidnapping know. as well, by the way. Mm -hmm. Kidnapping as well. Kidnapping, yeah. Um, false imprisonment. Yeah. 
Um, and some of those crimes, um, you know, there's child stealing as well, actually, yeah. under the Victorian Act, under the Offences Against Person Act. That crime's been repealed. That's been replaced by another crime in the 1997 Act. But the point is that crime is still um, applicable to historical, to older crimes. Um, yeah. And so the only, there's no time limit on any of those. The only one that I can come across that has a time limit for prosecution would be um, unlawful carnal knowledge of a girl between 15 and 17. There's a 12 month, you know, for, for social and political reasons, there was a 12 month time limit on that. But to best of my knowledge, there's no time limit on any other. So that's not a problem. Um, wh what we'd need to think about then is, well, well, first of all, can the commission refer? And as I said, um, other commissions um, have thought about this. Uh, the Commission to Encourage Child Abuse didn't really um, engage wholly with that matter. You know, they, they as I say, there were 11 um, prosecutions that did come out of it. Um, but when you think about the huge investigation that was going on in the late 90s when that commission was, was being discussed and created, um, there was a massive guard investigation going on to, into child sexual abuse in Artain at the time. And we, I don't know what happened. It, it disappeared into thin air is the short yeah. answer. Um, but, you know, if you look at the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sexual Abuse or, um, yeah, in 2017, it referred 2000 cases to the police. So the, the, this this um, report could have referred um, and maybe it will. Certainly the report itself has gone to the DPP. But if I was the DPP reading that report, it comes back to what we were saying earlier. Um it's very difficult to um, make any, um, draw any inferences, draw any conclusions from the report itself if you're thinking about launching um, a prosecution. But what you could do, every single um, person who has been the victim of a crime can absolutely go to the police and make a report. And it doesn't matter if they've given evidence to a commission before. Um, you know, they can go to the police and make a report of that crime against them. Um, the Gardaí then could um, get a warrant under the relevant legislation. They could get um, a, a warrant to, to um, seize evidence, including files from the religious. And that has happened in other countries. We haven't seen that really here, but there's no there's no legal reason why it couldn't happen here. Um, so the, the problem with um, an investigation might be that uh, survivors may not remember who the perpetrator was. So it might be difficult to identify someone, but there's no, there's no, you know, fundamental reason why they shouldn't, why they shouldn't be investigated and why survivors um, complaints should not be investigated. In, in fact, I take it further because yeah. there's a difference between investigating and a decision to prosecute. You know, the yeah. decision might be taken following an investigation that there is insufficient evidence to prosecute, but actually a failure to investigate crime mm -hmm. is an omission on the part of Angarda Siakona that is a dereliction of their duty. Like they are legally required to investigate reported offences, but also offences that they believe to have occurred. And in the same way, there is a legal requirement to hold inquests. Like this is absolute and it has not been done. And every coroner around the country has failed to do this. And like the inquest, I think, could be really significant because without that, the same requirement of evidence, a jury of an inquest could come to a conclusion of unlawful killing. And how symbolic would that be for all of those affected to have coroners stating that these children were unlawfully killed? 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's not a criminal standard. It's not a criminal finding. It doesn't imprison anyone, but that would be really significant. We also have to think about the fact, the role that the guards themselves played in this yeah, and mean, the need for independent, independent investigation of the Garda um, role in all of these. So GSOC, I think, would have to establish, um, you know, a, a unit effectively to deal with this. Yeah, I think that's something that that's the next one of the next things to break, because, every, you know, I've frequently come up in the case law um, of historical child sexual abuse. And I hate using the word historical, by the way, because I understand that these crimes and the effects of them continue into the present. And these things, you know, including the commission's report, it's not a historical matter by any means. Um, but there, there's clear um, testimony from survivors saying, you know, I reported and the police did nothing. Um, and there, that is an offence um, of um, misconduct in public office. That's actually yeah. a criminal offence. I haven't, you know, it hasn't really been used yet in the courts, but it is a criminal offence. In Ireland, there's a lot of cases in England. I yeah. mean, black taxi rapist where the police failed to investigate properly. And that omission led to further rapes of other women. Um, So like that has been effectively handled in the UK. We've just Mm. been a lot slower to go there in Ireland. But like that, it's actually a criminal offence. So I think there's a case from the mid 90s, Carney saying, you know, this is a woman reported um, abuse by her brother and the guards did nothing for 20 years, I think. Um, And Carney said very clearly that is a criminal offence. There are issues um, with, as you say, bringing a prosecution, but there's no reason to say why you could not have a search warrant issued that would involve the Gardaí going in um, on the basis of a judicially issued search warrant on the basis that they um, have reasonable grounds for believing that a crime has been committed. So... um, it feels like it's being prejudged, right? If people say, "Ah, oh, sure, we're not going to get a prosecution, so there's yeah. no point doing an investigation. You're prejudging the outcome, and that's deeply problematic. I know a lot of people are asking in the chat about um, about rejecting the report. Um, I, I'm not sure if people have particular views on that. I would remind people that, you know, it's very recently that the High Court or the Court of Appeal rejected the findings of the Kerry Babies Tribunal and de- ruled them legally to be um, unfounded uh, and wrong. And that's, you know, that's an avenue, certainly. Um, but ha- has anyone any thoughts on the idea of government rejecting the report or the Oireachtas rejecting the report? Right, yeah. Just very briefly, maybe it might be worth drawing a distinction between the report and the recommendations. I think people might be reluctant to do anything that would lead to a delay in action. Mm. Um, the recommendations of the report are very sparse. Um, but the recommendations are very clearly rooted in the analysis of the social history and the limited analysis of testimony. That's why, for example, there's a recommendation that women who were in the homes after 1974 should not get financial redress because unmarried mother's allowance, whatever, however pitiful that might have been, uh, was available after then. Um, so the Certainly, I think the government could. I mean, the commission has apparently only spent half its budget. Uh, the government could consult on an alternative truth finding scheme, ideally in proper consultation with interested survivors. But that should not be allowed to delay action, mm-hmm. um, particularly as the Clown Project have been saying now for years, and they're not wrong. Uh, it would be very easy to legislate to give adopted people ordinary access to their birth certificates, information is a separate question from contact. And there are also proposals on the table, survivor centres and adopted people centres proposals on contact. 
Um, the other thing is that financial redress, as the government will be very keen to point out, is ex gratia because there's no, in other words, it's in its gift. It's almost like a favour um, because there has been no finding of liability. The corollary of that is if paying redress is not dependent on liability, then the government can decide to set up a more generous redress scheme, ideally administered much more generously and much more favourably than prior redress schemes have. But in principle, there's clearly an issue. Even if we left aside the fine, fine-grained methodological points we've raised so far, what struck me, it will have struck others, Simon McGar said this earlier in the week, What's really clear is that rather than using any external standard like human rights standards, for example, this the, the conclusions of this commission lean very heavily on the conclusions of prior reports and the approaches of prior reports. When Fiona says this is the worst yet, I'd fine-tune that very slightly. It's a reproduction and a repetition of prior reports. Sinead and I have written about this, others have written about this. And so it's the worst iteration of the same thing rather than a different go that has turned out worse, if that makes sense. And because the commission is so clearly repeating a government set of tools, a government set of priorities, that has to call its independence into question. How can we say a commission is independent from government if it is so conveniently repeating government priorities, even to the point, for example, where the the, the women who would get redress, women who are in mother and baby homes, would only get redress if they could show exceptional circumstances related to duration of stay and, and labour, I, I mean work rather than um, birth. Um, and that's because that's, let's say, adapted rather than cut and pasted. Uh, but adapted from the Magdalene redress scheme. So when you see those conclusions and they're so clearly, they're treating non-binding prior commissions almost as precedents, you have to wonder about the independence of this process. So I'd say two things. The government is not bound by anything the commission has recommended Mm. and could start with tone now by being more generous. And second, the government has to shift its mindset from from commemoration or memory to something much more active. And that will involve going back into these questions about social history. I know others have ideas about this, but for me personally, part of where it went wrong was in this attempt to do something which was both general and selective, a story of all of Ireland and everybody, but leaving out anything that was too inconvenient. I think if we, apparently, if we have millions to produce so hurtful history, maybe we have millions for local history. Maybe we have millions to do something closer to, for example, the great work being done in Galway on Chum and its related institutions. I think bringing things back to individual stories, back to local stories, um, doing that kind of fine-grained history that responds very closely to people's needs rather than trying to produce a national story in the service of government would be much more helpful. I think that's a it's a particularly important point that any effort to reject the findings at this point could be used as a basis for not acting on the recommendations because how do you act on the recommendations if you've rejected the findings? Um, Fiona, have you been thinking strategically at all around, you know, next steps or how are survivors thinking about, you know, the 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 recommendations and the redress schemes that have been proposed? Yeah, I don't really have anything more to add to, to what Mike said, but I think tactically, yes, um, in my experience, the government take very long to do anything and that a rejection of the report could be just used as, as a delay. But at the same time, the the 
it, how, how do we then respect the fact that this if this report doesn't sit with many survivors and that that's that, that gendering act is, is difficult um for a government that will maybe want to um use the the delay because of course behind all this is the civil servants and at that time mm. just you know i've experienced those delays um in drawing attention to other redress schemes and you just you often just don't get the backup from yeah um, from, so it's 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 difficult yeah, so, I mean, the takeaway, I, I'm having a big takeaway from this, that um, the focus in the immediate should be on getting the best kind of redress and justice schemes put in place. Do that first, and down the line, we can focus on um, undermining and rejecting the report. Um, and Particularly when we've had more time to to put all of this in a cohesive narrative and way. Um I, I know we have gone over the hour. Sorry, Fiona. Just, just, I guess that's part of the redress. When you look at the redress, it's a key part of there needs to be whatever we want to call it, a review of the report. I don't know, whatever we call that, that's part of yeah, um, the, the, the hearing of stories in a, in a better way. Yes, that's a nice way of thinking about it, actually, that 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 gets part becomes part of the redress approach. Um so, okay, um, I, I'm really conscious we've gone over an hour, but I'd love to hear. Tony, are there any, um, I have not been able to keep an eye on that chat. It's been going mad, which is fantastic. Um, any particular questions coming through? Or Well, I think you've dealt with, with the main one in terms of people rejecting, wanting yeah. to come along and, and reject the actual proposal. Um, there's a lot of people talking about the unpaid labour, how these, you know, some of these, some of the works that were done there and how, how that needs to be dealt with. And the general theme is obviously that people feel that it's not going to be, it's not been accepted. The narrative has not been accepted by the general public. Now, there are a couple of, there is, there's a hand up in the audience. I don't know if... if um, Izzy wants to come in. Yeah. Can I just see if, uh, Izzy, if you'd like to unmute yourself there, I have. There you go. Hi, Izzy. Hi, how are you? Um, I'm... Uh, yeah, I haven't put any time into reading this report. I read all the interim reports. I think like everybody else, um, I um, I was waiting and tr- trying to remain optimistic about the um, about the eventual report of the commission. And uh, obviously, it's a pretty crushing disappointment to people. Uh, by the way, I don't know what I'd have to do to get my camera on. I'm holding a piece of card up in front of myself with a hashtag on it. I've been trying over the last few days. I'm very acutely aware of how disappointed people are and what a difficult, difficult time this is at the moment for people who've really invested a lot of hope in justice coming from the commission report which it doesn't seem to have done so you know i would just like to what i've tried to do in the last few days is to focus myself on practical actions that might give some help to people who have been so badly let down by the state um i've i've been particularly involved as people probably know around uh, the around Tum, and I know most of the the Tum survivors community at this stage uh, my my own interest is particularly in the burials now if a body was found in my back garden or your back garden one one body uh, there's a whole procedure that would um, be gone through immediately automatically there would be uh, an investigation into whether uh, there was a crime committed in the circumstances of that body getting to be there um and there would be an inquest so that the cause of death could be ascertained um 
the the state has been absolutely determined to block in every way possible these ordinary procedures going ahead, even in a case like Tum, where the burials themselves are extremely um, unusual and um, totally in violation of law, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, one of the things, uh, uh, apologists uh, talk all this stuff about crypt burials and this, that and the other. The fact is that under the burial laws throughout uh, the 20th century, uh, under the burial laws, it was completely illegal to bury a body in Ireland without a coffin, for example. That was for public health reasons. And and that was obviously ignored. There are a lot, a lot more irregularities in those burials. So I'd like to encourage people to give whatever practical support they can to the tomb survivors who are demanding an inquest, which I think um, has to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, I, as far as I'm aware, the hashtag that they're currently using on Twitter is justice for the 796, 796 bodies being unaccounted for at this time. Um, so I'd like to encourage people to to search uh, if you're on Twitter. I'm sorry, I always think in terms of Twitter because I don't do Facebook or any other social media. But but I'm sure uh, it's it, it, similar things apply. But if you search the Tomb Babies hashtag, there'll be lots of suggestions there for practical actions that people can do to support survivors. I think it's really important that there's a massive outpouring, not just of uh, you know, empathy and words and and feelings. It's not just about feeling sympathy for the survivors at this stage. We have to act in solidarity with them. Yeah. Uh, the massive piece of paper that I'm holding up that I don't think you can see no. has, has a hashtag on it, which has been my particular project over the last few days. Um, I, I know a lot of adopted people through my involvement in this uh, and indeed some mothers who had had babies in the homes. But uh, for adopted people, one of the uh, biggest struggles that have gone on for many years is the um, struggle to access their birth certs, normal yeah. identity information that all of us take so much for granted. So, uh, just Izzy, Izzy, we will add that to the to the blurb as it goes out. There's a and, petition there that's been that is yeah. I know you've been pushing majorly, and it will. I just wanted to 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 mention the petition because it was set up just over two days ago, and it's had twenty one thousand signatures uh, up, up to now, which uh, which I think is quite remarkable, but we can do better than that. I would like to ask people, the, the hashtag that you'll find that under is hashtag birth certs for, numeral four, adoptees now. Hashtag birth certs for adoptees now. I know Perfect. it's very long. And I think the, the really important the really important thing there is that the AG has said, thank God, we don't need a referendum in relation to that. But there seems yeah. to be some delay in terms of when exactly. that legislation will feature on the government program exactly. for legislation. Exactly. So it's exactly. about pushing to get that dealt with ASAP. Yes. And the quote in the Irish Times yesterday, which I think was attributed to, to Roderick O'Gorman, uh, it, it, the language of it really concerned me because it was all the government hopes to introduce yeah. legislation no. which they hope may assist survivors in, in accessing their information. Uh, this is, is absolutely not good enough. So the petition, uh, you're probably out of time, but if you had time, Mairead could tell you more about the actual legal proposal. But the, but the proposal contained in, in, in my petition is to insert 
one simple paragraph it would take literally minutes of doll time while yeah. while they're passing something else um, and and the petition's really important in that regard because we saw this like late last year on how you know the the absolute public outcry that was raised in relation to Emisha Bay sexual abuse and our our own Linda was so important in that work really brought that forward on the agenda so these aren't it, it it's not a non thing it's not slacktivism to sign that petition oh, it no. will it it will um you know if there's enough outcry it will push the government to act well, um, the, the model that I'd like to draw people's attention to is the petition about the yeah. the, the nuns controlling the the national maternity hospital now that one got over two hundred thousand signatures, and I don't see why we shouldn't get that amount also. So yeah. I would like to encourage everybody on all your social media, also uh, by emailing your contacts. I'd like everybody to send the link to to that petition to as many people as they can, and and to do it repeatedly. I really think that uh, over the weekend now it's going to be a very difficult time for survivors. Yeah, There's a lot of distressing stories in the Sunday papers and so on, and I think. Something I think this report has robbed people of hope. People have held on for years in in the hope of something that hasn't really happened here. And hope the, the, is important. We have to get the hope I do take from the last few days is the wholesale disquiet with this. And that is unusual. That is an absolute first to see politicians coming out the way that they have done, to see media coming out the way that they have done. And that does give me hope that there is scope for change. To even have Roderick already saying, suggesting they might possibly be able to go further than the recommendations in the report. So I think in the coming weeks, what's going to be really important to take from all of this is listening to survivors about what kind of redress, um, justice, um, memorials, everything they want and for us to push appropriately. Um, And I know the group of people gathered here that have contributed so expertly this morning will be working really, really hard to try and think about ways to achieve that. Um, You know, I'm on a WhatsApp group where there's been ideas flying around already, um, like feminists judging this out and all sorts of things. So we are going to wrap up now. Um, I do want to say a huge thank you to all of the participants. I mean, these people here today are not, you know, as such personally affected by the issues, but I can assure you they've had an exceptionally grueling week of reading, analysing the report, trying to give some kind of expert comment and help us all to understand the true significance of what we've heard um, and what we're reading. A huge thanks to our listeners. The engagement today is amazing. And just, you know, from since I've been involved, I think this is one of the highest attendances at a live podcast. And that's just brilliant to see such engagement with it. Um, This reminder, like a reminder, this episode is done entirely in support and solidarity with the women and families directly affected by all of this. We're going to keep coming back to these issues in the shack and do our bit to call out um, the injustice and to call for real justice. Um, So I mostly just want to say a huge thank you to everyone for listening. Um, But we will be coming back to these issues. And as ever, support us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack before Tony chops my head off. Um, So thank you very much very much.